0: Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty.
1: There are four things every property has to do if we're going to reach the sustainable relationship with the natural world that I talk about. One is we've got to support those pollinators. Every landscape has to manage the watershed in which it lies. Because every landscape is in a watershed, and and the plants you put on your property are going to uh, help manage that. You are nature's best hope. Not just the kids, but their parents. All of us are nature's best hope. Whether or not we act is going to determine what nature is like in the future. Testing,
0: testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers.
2: This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode,
1: there's a great analogy between Las Vegas and our properties. You know, if you go to Las Vegas, they will tell you what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. (laughs) What happens in our yards does not stay in our yards. And that's the problem. The amount of lawn you treat or you keep, the plant choices you make, whether you have a a mosquito fogger come in and kill everything. All of these choices you make for your property impact everybody else, impacts all of the greeners
2: Welcome to Homegrown National Park. Sure, it doesn't have the big name recognition of places like Yellowstone, Banff or the Everglades, but it's no less important. Douglas Tallamy coined the term Homegrown National Park and he writes about it extensively in books like Nature's Best Hope and the recently released Young Readers Edition adapted by Sarah L. Thompson. Doug joined Ian to discuss seeing plants as functional organisms, rather than just ornaments, the history of the perfect lawn, and what kids can do to contribute to homegrown National Park.
0: In the episode with Lorraine Johnson, we talked a bit about the concept of regeneration or restoration, and why that's so important to focus on that in addition to conservation. And I thought we would start by unpacking why we need to look at restoration and regeneration instead of just the conservation piece.
1: Well, we do have parks and we do have preserves in the US. The national park system comprises 3.6% of the land, and only 12% of the land is federally protected, which leaves 88% unprotected. Right. And those parks and preserves are all isolated. They're all much smaller than we need. And the problem with small preserves is that they have small populations within them. And small populations are highly vulnerable to local extinction. So it's a recipe to add to the biodiversity crisis over time and isolating nature into little pockets that are not sustainable. The only real solution is to build viable habitat outside of those parks and preserves. And, you know, that's private property outside. Those are the properties that we all own. We own them in a lot of different forms, but in the US, there's 135 million acres of residential landscapes. And that is a big opportunity for landowners, property owners everywhere to contribute to the restoration of biodiversity. That's what's going to save the species on this planet. And we might talk for a bit about why we need to save them. Absolutely. Those are the species that run the ecosystems that we all depend on, they produce our life support. So having functional ecosystems everywhere not just in parks and preserves, is essential. It is not an option to have humans here in nature someplace else because there is no someplace else in most places. So that makes the property owner, that makes the the private landowner, the future of conservation. And the reason I write my books and do my talks is that they don't know that. (laughs) They don't know that it all depends on them. They don't know that we need to coexist with the natural world. And they don't know that how they landscape their yards is going to determine whether they're successful or not. So that's the restoration part. We've got to put it back. Our landscapes have been designed for aesthetics only. They have not been designed for ecosystem function. But we can have beautiful landscapes that are ecosystem friendly at the same time.
0: So the next question then is, how do we get to that ecosystem friendly state? And of course, this differs depending on the location that you're in. But what does what you've coined as homegrown national park look like?
1: You know, I came up with that idea when I looked at the amount of area in North America that's in lawn. It's it's over 44 million acres dedicated to an ecological deadscape. I mean, lawn does, does nothing that we need it to do. And that's an area larger than the size of New England. So step one, the easiest thing is to think about reducing that area. What if you have a yard? Can you cut the area of lawn in half? Let's just start that way. So if we make the math simple, that gives us 20 million acres. And if you add up the size of our major national parks in the U.S., add them all up together, it's still less than 20 million acres. So that's the area that we're going to restore. That's the area I'm calling homegrown national park because it's going to happen on home properties. And it will be bigger. It'll be the biggest park in the country. It'll be bigger than than all the other major parks combined. We can't stop at that you know 20 million acres, we've got to restore a lot more than that but it's a great starting point it's the low-hanging fruit
0: that's a good way to put it and i'm sure some fruits would be growing in homegrown national park you write about your own iteration of homegrown national park in your book i'm curious what are some of the highlights of it if you could give us sort of a quick virtual tour of your homegrown national park
1: Well, it's been an awful lot of fun, for one thing. We got a piece of a farm that was broken up into 10-acre lots. And the last thing they did before they sold it was to mow it for hay. So there's very few plants there, or certainly very few trees. And what we did was we put the eastern deciduous forest back. We've got some meadow. Simply by working with the blue jays, working with the squirrels, (laughs) and getting some seeds ourselves, particularly oak trees. You know, I put acorns in the ground the first year we moved in that was the year 2000 those trees are now uh, well over 60 feet tall wow and it was free now when i garden i garden with a chainsaw because i <laughs> i'm losing my son but you know we put the plants back and I have been measuring, you know, my research has shown that moths are extremely important in terrestrial ecosystems. They're transferring more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of plant eater. So if you know the number of species of moths in your local food web, you have a very good index of how stable that food web is and how productive it is, how many species are being supported there. So six years ago, I started to count the number of species of moths that are now making a living at our house because we put the plants back. And I'm still at it, but I'm up to 1,215 species that I've recorded. I've got pictures of each one of those right in my yard, which shows that this works. We've also counted the number of species of birds that have bred there. And we're up to 62 species of birds that have bred there because we've got the caterpillars that they need to raise their young. So that exercise not only has been fun, but it's been really encouraging to me. I'm not just talking about it. This works! You know, I've got living proof right where we live that this works. Every year we get new species coming in and, you know, if I can do it at really kind of very part-time, because I'm doing lots of other things, other people can do it as well.
0: And I know you focus a lot on oaks and you've written about oak trees in your book, The Nature of Oaks, and just their importance as a keystone species in addition to willows and cherries. And then when we get to herbaceous plants, things like sunflowers, I loved your little chapter in the adult version of Nature's Best Hope, A Weekend with Wags. It wasn't I guess it wasn't even really a chapter, just sort of an insert. But I love his books, his caterpillar books. That's really how I've learned caterpillars. So I re- really resonated with that little inset. So thank you for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, A week with Wags. A lot of fun. We're talking about David Wagner, of course, who uh he wrote the Caterpillars of Eastern North America and he's been working on the caterpillars of western North America for oh, nice. The- yeah, 12 years now. And I say, when are you going to finish? And he says, never. And what he means by that is there's so many species. But we're trying to get him to actually publish that before he gets hit by a truck or something. Because there's no good guide to the the larval stages of moths and, and butterflies in the West. And his books, I you know, he doesn't appreciate this. But they have been a connecting force with the public. The public can find a caterpillar, look it up in his books, and put a name to it. You know, if we humans don't name something, then it's just a worm. It's just a nothing. And we we forget about it. Totally. So you put a name to it. You can read what it eats, where it's found. And that is a bit of information that creates an emotional connection to that creature. So he has been a much bigger force in terms of engaging the public than, than he realizes.
0: He has indeed.
2: Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. What distinguishes homegrown National Park from so many others is its astounding ubiquity. Chances are a piece of it is within walking distance of your home.
0: Well, let's wind the clock back a bit. You've been doing all this work. You mentioned that you started your own Homegrown National Park in 2000, but your journey toward restoration and conservation began much earlier than that. So where where did all this start? I'm going to use a plant pun. I use probably too many on this show, but where was the seed planted or when was the seed planted?
1: The seed was planted by my parents (laughs) because I was born that way. I was born loving nature. You know, I've got a brother and I've got a, a sister and we were all raised in the same house and the same exposure. They don't have that connection. They don't share it. They're into other things. So it's it really, I, I'm not kidding. I was born with this love of the natural world. I did have an experience early on. I guess I was in third grade. We had just moved to our house, a new house in a development that was built. And the lot next to us was undeveloped for a full year after we moved in. And there was a little, little pond there. That was my first true connection with nature. I was at that pond every day and and loved the little things that lived there, and particularly the polywogs and the toads that came and made it and sang and created the polywogs and the dragonflies and all the things that were there. And I was next to that pond the day the bulldozer came and buried the whole thing. Uh, and that was the end of the pond. It was the end of the toads in my neighborhood. It was, it was the end of that living uh, ecosystem. And that made an impression on me in third grade. So... Uh, If there was a seed that we needed to do something, probably was that day that 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 happened. What is interesting to me now, when I look back, is that I made the same mistake that most of us have made. I I said, we've we've got to save all the stuff that's not destroyed. And that's been the focus of conservation for the last hundred years. It never occurred to me that I could walk, you know, 50 feet into my yard and dig another pond. I could have saved those creatures right then and there. And my parents wouldn't mind. They probably would have helped me. It just, I never had that. You know, I didn't realize we really can coexist with nature. So it's too bad I didn't. But it's not that we want to stop saving the pristine areas or the undeveloped areas. But there's not that many left anymore. Mm-hmm. I know that's a harder message in Canada because you've got so much wonderful habitat. But go south and a lot of it's gone. So Let's put it back. And it's so convenient to put it back right where you live.
0: We talked about this a bit with Lorraine Johnson. It's a mindset shift that's needed to get people to think about the fact that we're operating from, you know, to put it in economic terms, a debt position. Just protecting what we have, as you say, isn't going to cut it. We need to bring back what has been lost. And again, as you say, so many people aren't really aware of that. And this is, of course, not to say that conservation protection isn't incredibly important of course it is but what have you found to be effective in changing mindsets I mean writing your books probably is the again low-hanging fruit answer to that and it certainly resonates with someone like me who's inclined to this kind of stuff but what about others who aren't automatically going to read all of your books as I would.
1: You know, we we call it, we we divide it into the choir, the people that already get it. And yes, they'll come to my talks. I've seen you six times. Well, that's great. But I need to reach the people that don't get it, that don't come to my talks. It's not that they disagree. It's that they don't have a clue. They don't know. Right. They don't realize. Now we've made progress. It's not just me talking about this anymore. The UN met this year, and we're in Montreal, a big, big conference on, on biodiversity. Yeah. There are a lot of people that recognize that we do have a crisis, and I'm calling it a crisis because it is, and we're losing, you know, we're in the sixth great extinction event. And again, these are the species that keep us alive on the planet. So that has helped. People see headlines, you know, we've lost 3 billion breeding birds in North America in the last 50 years. And the UN says we're going to lose a million species in the next 20 years and global insect decline. People are reading those headlines in major outlets and they're upset about it. So, what I have found works is that I'm giving them solutions. There's something you can do about that and you can see the difference. The problem of reaching the people that I haven't reached is still a major one. You know, how do we? reach that non choir I've had several groups approach me about making a documentary because that's very powerful. People don't read anymore, they watch. And I say yes every time, but uh, so far nobody's been able to come up with the major funding to to do a good job with it. But that would be one approach. Social media is very powerful. I mean, so now our our homegrown nationalpark.org, our know, small nonprofit, we are using social media. I don't do it myself, but um and that's reaching a lot of people we had a post the other day that 14 million people tuned into so so it is changing but it's still a challenge we we you know we go what do we have uh, 320 million people in the US alone and let's be generous and say i've reached 1 million of them <laughs> well that's that's 319 million that still don't have a clue so we've got a ways to go and i don't know we try we're trying everything we can this podcast right now yeah. is is going to reach people so and, and i'm doing these things all the time so
0: another big barrier that you write about and you talk about a lot is just getting beyond the idea of the perfect lawn and it really does strike me that it's so normalized but it's so weird when you really step back and think about it just you walk around and you just see these manicured lawns everywhere imagine you know somebody from like a parallel universe not to get too out there but you know from a parallel universe where that just isn't a thing and they see this they'd be what the heck are they up to here how do we get beyond what i mean i hate to say it but it is sort of propaganda the whole idea of you need to have the perfect lawn like how, how do we crack that nut
1: it's totally propaganda you know the yeah it's been a standard symbol for hundreds of years because that's what the aristocracy in europe did it showed that you had enough property that you didn't need to farm all of it and it showed that you had enough either slaves or sheep that could tend to the lawn and only the rich could do that and then of course we invented the lawnmower and then all of us poor slobs could have a lawn but then the you know the turf grass industry got involved and said if it's not a perfect lawn if you don't use our fertilizer if you don't use our herbicides and and insecticides you're a communist
3: (laughs) <laughs> and yeah. so, you
1: know, in the 50s, we believe that. Okay. There was a very strong status symbol of cooperation. You know, you get the culture. I'm going to be a good citizen. I'm going to do what everybody else wants. You don't have to go to a parallel universe. You know, look at the indigenous cultures. They look at this and say, well, what, you know, where is the respect for, for nature that we have depended on for many, many millennia? Totally gone. So ecologically, it makes no sense at all. There are four things. Every property has to do, if we're going to reach the sustainable relationship with the natural world that I talk about, one is we've got to support those pollinators, not, not because they help our crops, but because they pollinate 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. Every property has to do that. Every property has to sequester carbon. You know, the more plants you put in your yard, the more carbon uh, dioxide you're pulling out of the atmosphere, out of out of harm's way. Every landscape has to manage the watershed in which it lies. Because every landscape is in a watershed, and, and the plants you put on your property are going to uh, help manage that. And finally, every landscape has to support the local food web, or you don't have a local food. Web. You got to choose plants that pass on their energy, some of it, so that you have animals, so that you can have functioning ecosystems. Lawn does none of those things. So, <laughs> so that's why I talk about reducing the area of lawn so that you actually can restore some level of ecosystem function to your yard. I realized while ago that there's an, a great analogy between Las Vegas and our properties you know if you go to Las Vegas they will tell you what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas <laughs> what happens in our yards does not stay in our yards and that's the problem the amount of lawn you treat or you keep the plant choices you make whether you have a, a mosquito fogger come in and kill everything, All of these choices you make for your property impact everybody else, impacts all of the greater ecosystem around you. And again, people aren't thinking like that. We do have property rights. You have the right to do what you want on your your property, but not really, not when it hurts everything else. And that's been a tough message to get out there.
0: Does success kind of look like an airport in the sense that getting rid of lawn and replacing it with native plants and multiple layers means you have lots of insects and birds and maybe even mammals and things coming and going. Is that also an analogy that might work?
1: Sure. You know, 25% of a red fox's diet is insects. 22% of a black bear's diet is insects. So mammals do depend on insects and countless other smaller things do as well. Yeah, we're talking about all of the trophic levels. We're talking about the plants. That's the first trophic level. And you're talking about the herbivores that eat those plants and then the things that eat the herbivores and the things that eat the things that eat the herbivores. Very complex. It's why we use the term food web instead of food chain. It's not a linear chain. That oak tree we talked about, one in my yard has the potential of supporting 557 species of caterpillars alone. And each one of those caterpillars supports a number of species of hymenopter parasitoids, the little wasps and other insect predators and all the birds that eat them. And you get this, think of it as a spider web, all those little connections out there. If you take away that one oak tree in my yard, you've devastated hundreds or maybe thousands of other species.
0: Yeah, statistics like that are staggering for lack of a better term. I mean, you just, when you're affecting a thousand or more species because of one action, With one species of tree, I mean, that's something you want to pay attention to. Hey, it's Ian. You might already know about our book, Teaching About Invasive Species. For those who don't, it's a collection of perspectives, programs, and hands-on activities geared toward outdoor and environmental educators. Visit greenteacher.com to order your copy.
2: Like so many national parks, homegrown has many vastly different regions, Some support hardy arctic plants, while others are overflowing with subtropical blossoms.
0: So the big focus of the most recent version of Nature's Best Hope is what can kids do about this? And you have lots of great advice, so what are some of the tips you would suggest?
1: Well, of course, kids are the future stewards of the planet, but... As each culture comes along, or each uh, generation comes along, they get more and more disconnected from the natural world that they have to be good stewards of. So the object is to tell them, you are the future stewards of the planet, tell them that it's important, and give them some ideas about how easy this can be. I mean, I've talked about my own experience of planting acorns. Any child can do that. But there's some knowledge involved. When do the acorns fall? Where do you find them? Which species are appropriate? You know, the red oak group germinates in the spring and the white oak group germinates in the fall. Kids can learn all of that. And it doesn't cost a thing. Kids can be a powerful motivator for their parents saying, "And I'd really like to put in a pollinator garden. Can I get some plugs and and put them in? You learn a lot about gardening. You learn what works and what doesn't work. Maybe I can plant a plant that the monarch butterfly will use. And then we can track those monarchs and find the eggs and find the larvae and find the chrysalid. And realize that the monarch needs not just milkweed, it needs the plants that get it down to Mexico in, in the fall. So the goldenrods and the sunflowers and the asters that give it the nectar, the energy that that can fuel its migration. All of these are very powerful lessons. Kids can be a force that helps their school transform their own at least part of their property. I know we need places for the kids to play, but there's an awful lot of land and an awful lot of schools that uh, is either just paved over or mowed without thought. So there are a number of things that kids can do. You know, the easiest thing if we're going to fight global insect decline is to change the light bulbs in your outdoor lights. Almost all our light bulbs now are white. So they're emitting white wavelengths, cool wavelengths that are very attractive to insects. We want to put in yellow bulbs. Those are warm wavelengths, and nocturnal insects are not attracted to them hardly at all. So, putting in a yellow bulb over your front porch or over your garage, any child can do that or ask their parents to do that. And you will see those insects stop coming. That alone will save millions of insects over a very short period of time. And if you make it an LED, you're saving millions of dollars too. So, these are all things that even little kids can do.
0: And I feel like something like comparing which insects are attracted to white lights versus yellow lights is very easily doable at a nature center at a museum a school could do it they could do a study yeah they could do you know a month of observations what you know put a white sheet beside each light and then come in first thing in the morning or you know maybe have one of those motion sensor cameras and sort of check the profile of individuals and diversity right and you can really see it
1: for yourself and in front of your own eyes That's a citizen science project. You can learn what science really is. The general public right now seems to think it's opinion. (laughs) Science is the process of asking a question, designing an experiment that will test that question. Which light attracts more insects? Very simple question, but it's a hypothesis until you test it a number of times and then you can come to a conclusion.
0: Yeah, you know, the light thing is another one that I just don't think is on a huge amount of people's radar. I mean, I read about it in Dave Golson's recent book silent earth and he has a whole chapter on some of the many causes of this gargantuan insect decline that we've seen and that's something that i've heard about in various circles but again i think the average person probably thinks it's habitat loss which of course is huge pesticide use also huge but those are things that the individual can maybe do a bit less about at least on a large scale but changing your light bulbs very doable for an individual
1: Right. And it goes hand in hand with restoring that habitat. You can put that oak tree and the other powerful plants in your yard. But if you kill all the insects that come there every day with your nocturnal lights, it's not going to make a huge difference. So we've got to think of all these factors together. If you hired the mosquito fogger, you can have all the right plants in your yard, but he will come and fog and tell you he's only killing mosquitoes, but he's actually killing all the pollinators and the monarchs and everything else at at the same time. So we have to, to think like an insect. What's going to harm me? You know, yes, mosquito fogging kills insects, including including the little guys. Lights kill insects. All of these things do. Neonicotinoids, like Dave Golson talks about, those pink seeds you put in your garden. Only 5% of that insecticide is taken up by the plant. And the other 95% washes into the water table or blows away on dust where we have no idea what it's doing. Neonicotinoids are, five, what, 7,000 times more toxic to insects than than DDT was. And we all use them. So, you know, yeah. we're the problem. We can we can turn this around by just recognizing that insects are essential. We have to stop killing them in the myriad ways that we do.
0: Yeah, we have to get over this fear of bugs. And I, I mean, the term bug is loaded with all kinds. I mean, it's inaccurate. It's only one order of insects.
1: And, and it's pejorative. Oh, Totally. A bug is a disease you get, or it's something that wrecks your computer. <laughs> Most insects are not bugs, as you say.
0: Yeah, they're a pretty big deal. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Jade.
3: Thanks Ian. Hello all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like Busy Bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian?
0: Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favourite podcast app.
2: Many people visit parks to observe animals, and Homegrown National Park is decidedly rich in animal life, with insect and bird diversity particularly high.
0: So the most recent version of Nature's Best Hope is I think it follows it's fair to say it follows a very similar track to the adult version that came out a few years ago and it's maybe not even accurate to say it's like the adult version it's just the first version and then this revised version which is put more into language for children much in the way that I've seen with other books like Braiding Sweetgrass a recent youth edition of that one just came out so how are the two versions different for those who aren't familiar?
1: Well, I think you've hit on it. They're not different. It's the exact same message. And I've even been criticized. Oh, they're things you should have taken out for the kids. No, they're not. <laughs> they need to hear it all. But it's written in, in their language. So yeah, it's written in their language. It is not dumbed down in terms of the message. And the message is, you are nature's best hope. Not just the kids, but their parents. All of us are nature's best hope. Whether or not we act is going to determine what nature is like in the future, and if we let nature die, we're, we're gone too. So it's a it's an important and powerful message. But the real message is you're the hope, you can do something about it, and it works.
0: And this is so important, and we talk about this a lot on this show, this idea that young people in particular are staring at so many big ecological challenges. There's climate, there's pesticides, there's fertilizers, there's biodiversity collapse, ocean acidification. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. And of course... It's easy to feel hopeless and that empowerment piece and looking at solutions and what can I do about it and what are other people doing about it is just so critical and we talk about it ad nauseum on this show, but that's what I really love about both versions of the book is that you don't just talk about the problems, you talk about the solutions and this most updated version, having it in the language for kids is great and I also love all the pictures, although there are great pictures in both versions of the book, I should say
1: yeah, they made those pictures black and white for the kids' but I was very disappointed in that. you know, I know, but they're trying to keep it cheap so they can use it in schools. So yeah,
0: fair enough. It's a good practical approach to things, I guess. Any final thoughts or advice for students, parents, educators, young people in general, and those in their sphere, in their orbit?
1: What I always end talks like this with is the notion of responsibility. This is not just a necessary thing to do for our own good, but good earth stewardship is everybody's responsibility, the young and the old, because we all need good earth stewardship. Everybody in the planet depends on functioning ecosystems. So why would we only have earth stewardship assigned to a few scientists or a few conservation biologists? It's everybody's responsibility. And I want that to become part of the culture. And that means we've got to inculcate it right into the earliest stages of education. That is what I see as the major difference between our indigenous cultures and our Western and Asian cultures is we don't do that. We don't respect the natural world that supports us. We've got to start. Yeah.
0: It's already been done for thousands of years, as you mentioned earlier. It's just... That's
1: right. And it worked. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: it absolutely. The proof's in the pudding. And it is something that we can do. And again, we talk about this a lot, but talking about pie in the sky solutions doesn't really do a lot of good. But this is far from playing this guy. It's right literally in your own backyard. Homegrown National Park. I can't wait to get out into my own part of Homegrown National Park. And thank you for coining that term and for all the work that you do. Truly inspiring. And it's just such a great pleasure to have you on this show.
1: Well, thank you very much.
2: Maybe the best part about Homegrown National Park is that it is set to expand, perhaps exponentially in the coming years and decades. You might ask, how can I get involved and start attracting animals to my patch? Well, it often starts with a shovel and a few seeds. If you grow it, the animals will come. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon.
0: Excellent. We survived a technical glitch and
1: we did, we did. finished in time I'm, to I'm get gonna, you out
0: of here for your your next yeah,
1: webinar.